You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Episode 44, The Umbrella Academy. Welcome back. This is one I've been looking forward to for a while now, Dave. This is the discussion of the Umbrella Academy, and I hope you guys are excited to hear about this show. And gosh, I first learned about the Umbrella Academy when I was reporting on the casting news for the Den of Geek podcast, and I've been excited by the description ever since, especially for all of the different powers that we get to see in this particular show. Yeah, and as I started watching it and maybe five, 10, 15 minutes in, I start thinking like, okay, this is sort of like Harry Potter, who've now become the magicians meets the (laughs) X-Men. And clearly there are reasons I say that, but Mike, I got to tell you, I freaking love this show. Yeah. I think there's a little Miss Peregrine's home for peculiar children as well. A little bit of that. Yeah. What a great show. And it's just based on a comic, right? So it's, it's not necessarily um, something that we were familiar with heading into it, but did you check out the comic at all in your research? I did. And as you know, I'm not a big comic guy, but it was interesting. And as you said a couple of weeks ago in one of our podcasts, the source material is coming from all over the place, novels, trilogies, graphic novels, and Graphic novels seem to be a little bit more difficult to bring to the screen, but gosh. Well, especially if you're going for a non-conventional superhero style of story. And I think this definitely fits that bill. But before we get started, I do want to say that if you haven't seen episodes one or two, we are going to be talking about those two episodes in particular, basically to talk about our enjoyment of the series in general, but also In case there are those out in the audience that are deciding whether they want to watch it, this will act as a teaser for them in addition to allowing those people who have seen it to enjoy our discussion. So if you want to wait until you've seen the first two episodes, come back to the podcast later. Otherwise, we're going to dive right in. (laughs) And as you said, it dropped on Netflix February 15th, 2019, and there are 10 episodes based on the Dark Horse comic series, which was published in 2007 and 8, that comprised only six issues, the Umbrella Academy Apocalypse Suite, which was created and written by Gerard Way and illustrated by Gabriel Ba. Now, the premise is (laughs) pretty darn interesting. (laughs) October 1st, 1989, 43 women around the world give birth to babies even though none of them had been pregnant until the time of the birth. That day, right. (laughs) And we get that opening scene in the Soviet Union, and the, the young teenage girl gives birth in the swimming pool. And I wonder if she ends up being one of the characters later. I'll talk about that in in a few minutes, but eccentric billionaire Reginald Hargreaves decides he wants to adopt as many of these children as possible. And in the end, he's able to adopt only seven. And right. And that brings two things to mind. Number one, well, first of all, what caused it to begin with, but also what about the other 30 odd kids? Do they also have powers and we just don't know about it? <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And then of course the other question becomes how did Reginald Hargreaves know that this was something that he was going to want to foster in some way. So 
lots of mysteries to set up the show and lots of mysteries that come about (laughs) during the course of even the first two episodes. Right. And since I have not seen beyond episode two, as we're recording this, I'm wondering whether he's just taking a chance like so many successful billionaires, business people. Sometimes you just take a chance and and you wonder if that's what he was doing or did he have some knowledge of what these babies actually are? But we shift to the present. Hargraves has just died and his children have come back together for the funeral service. And the children clearly are the core of this series, at least through the first two episodes. And and we get a few childhood flashbacks because these kids were raised, uh, you used the word superhero a few minutes ago, and essentially that's how they're raised to be superheroes, except for one. And that is, of course, Vanya. It's weird because usually a a show like this would focus on an origin story and getting to see their powers and stuff like that. And we certainly do get to see their powers very early on. But for it to start with their heyday long behind them and so they're kind of has-beens at this point, I think is a very interesting way to frame it. it. It immediately puts it in a kind of macabre tone that you don't usually see in superhero shows. So I thought that was a very cool choice. And that's why I feel like it did have that Miss Peregrine feel almost like uh, the Adams family kind of, (laughs) you know, dark days. Well, right. And you sort of allude that their best days are behind them. But what's fascinating is that all of them hate their father. Well, that's not true. It doesn't seem as if Luther number one hates his father as much as the others do. But they even refer to him as a monster for what it is they perceive he did to them. And and as the story goes along, I, I think they have a point. But in the childhood flashbacks that we see, the kids foil an armed robbery at a bank. And the other interesting thing in this series, at least again, through the first two episodes There is a sort of darkness that pervades this series, but there's also a playfulness as well. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know about you, but I was a little surprised at how easily they kill people. Yeah, they're not trying to, you know, shoot them in the kneecaps or anything like that. They're taking them out. Right. And what essentially... Hargraves has done to these seven children is conduct a sociological and psychological experiment with them. Yeah, for sure. And and it's very tough upbringing, very strict in what they're allowed to do. And he wants things a very specific way, even if it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with fostering their powers, but rather just their comportment. Right. Now, the other thing I thought was done so well is the casting even though ellen page is really the only actor that i was really familiar with but i just think they did a wonderful job the children and this tells you everything you need to know about hargreaves is that he doesn't give his children names he assigns them numbers yeah and through the first two episodes, we don't really learn how it is they've come to have the names that they have. Did they just simply give them to themselves? Did they give them to each other through two episodes? We don't know that yet. But number one, and I assume number one was the first baby that he acquires. Yeah. 
and that is Luther, played by Tom Hopper from Black Sails and Merlin. And we see him, and he's engaged in some kind of outer space. It looks like a mining operation. And our first instinct is to think that he's on the moon, and we get verification for that later. But he is physically huge. And one of the things that I'm still wondering about, is that a result of his time spent on the moon, or is that his superpower, that this huge body physique? Right. Well, here's the thing. The description of what's going on with him is available in any plot synopsis that you'll see out there, including the article on Den of Geek. So I won't say what it is, but it's clear that when you're watching the series that they're not explaining that up front. They're just showing that he's got this normal sized head and a gigantic physique. And it's weird that they chose to reveal that in the character description and yet don't say it at all on the show. So I'll wait to see if that's discovered in later episodes. Okay. Now the thing about number one, Luther is that he's convinced their father did not die naturally. None of the others cares. Yeah. And none of the others feels there's even a shred of evidence that would point to something other than a heart attack. He takes it a step further thinks that one of the kids may have killed their father. And the one that he really had honed in on, eventually he figures that he has an alibi and he apologizes. But Allison, who is number three, tells him to not turn dad's death into a mission, which of course he does. And we eventually learn that, yeah, maybe there is something here. But the other interesting thing we learn about Luther is that he, unlike the others, apparently never left the house. Oh, okay. Except for the moon. (laughs) Except for the moon, right. But when he was a child. Okay. Now, number two is Diego, played by David Castaneda, and he wears a mask, which is a throwback to when they were children. They had these little outfits, and and they all wore little... They they remind me of the mask that Robin used to wear in Batman and Robin. It's got black outline and a white part that's covering the the eyeball itself so yeah it's very comic inspired right and at first we think he might be some sort of a thief but it turns out he's really a vigilante uses knives as his weapon of choice and he's very adept at throwing knives and there are a number of scenes where he throws knives and it's that classic line if i wanted you dead you'd be dead right exactly it's like he doesn't even need to aim them they just aim themselves Right. Now, we learn that he was kicked out of the police academy, so he's got that in his blood, and whether it harkens back to his childhood fighting crime, we don't know yet why he was kicked out of the police academy. I would certainly suspect it's that he can't follow orders, but he investigates crimes on his own, and we learn right away that he's got some kind of a relationship with Detective Eudora, And I think it's also pretty clear that they had some sort of a romantic relationship as well. Much to her chagrin. She doesn't like him mentioning it, but yeah. (laughs) Right. And now she simply tolerates his behavior. Uh, You know, she has him arrested at one point, taken down to the station and eventually released. But he's just a pain in her butt in terms of investigating crimes. And I guess this is just something he can't get out of his system. But I guess one of the other things we learn about the children 
who are now adults is they're still struggling to find purpose. They're still struggling to find meaning in their lives. And well, especially in adulthood by themselves without the others. (laughs) Right. Uh, He lives in the back room of a boxing gym, which is a scene that, that suddenly caused me to think, well, their father was a billionaire. Yeah. Why don't they have any money? Yeah. He was not bringing them into that at all as part of their upbringing. So I think that extended into adulthood at which point they may have already been estranged from him anyway. Yeah. Now, number three, Allison played by Emmy Raver Lampman is a movie star and we see her early on walking the red carpet, but we don't really know what it is that has gotten her to that point. And then one of her siblings makes some offhand comment. I hope your next movie is better than the last one. (laughs) Yeah. But she's divorced, lost custody of her child. And I don't want to say she more than the others is really torn emotionally because of the fact that she's been removed from her daughter but, you know, maybe she is. I mean, we get that scene with Vanya where she tells Vanya, her sister, you don't have a kid. You don't know what it's like. And uh, that's a difficult statement to come back at. Well, yeah. And I think what we're seeing here is that each one of the characters has something missing from their lives that they're trying to attain. And I think like Diego certainly has to try and figure out what this superhero vibe that he wants to keep looks like as an adult by himself and how can he make that work and allison has achieved fame perhaps because of her power somewhat and so each person is looking for something that they lost or something that they are trying to like you said get meaning from in their adulthood right and you know as you mentioned when we talked about discovery of witches a couple weeks back that diana really was trying to not use her powers And that's sort of the same with Allison. Her power appears to be the ability to control people that she makes a wish and it comes true. Right. She's the only one that got some kind of superhero name that I could hear. They called her the rumor at one point. And it seems to me that anything that she whispers in your ear becomes reality. (laughs) Right. Now, we get that scene where she's watching childhood tapes, which, as she said, you know, most kids have home movies. Our dad has surveillance video. And she notices how badly the other kids treated Vanya. And then she sees something that really alarms her about her father. And it goes back to Luther feeling as if there's something funny about their father's death. So it it seems as if maybe what she sees on this surveillance video might tie into that. But... Let me let me just jump ahead to number seven for a second, and that's Vanya, played by Ellen Page from X-Men, Juno, Inception. I think most people recognize Ellen Page. But Allison makes that statement to Pogo about how poorly they treated her as a kid, and it starts with the father because he tells Vanya, you're unexceptional. You're not special. And we see her right at the start as a violinist. I don't know about you, Michael. I know you're a musician as am I. She sounds pretty darn talented to me. Yeah. Yeah. Even though she's like third chair in the orchestra that she works in, you get the sense that Vanya is used to being in the background and that's just been part of her life. 
but don't you get the sense that this whole thing with you don't have any powers, you're not exceptional. You stay here with me while we watch the superhero kids do their vigilante thing. And you know, at some point, some kind of power is going to come out of Anya. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and you think how difficult that had to be as a child. I mean, she was relegated to holding the clipboard as her father timed the other kids running up and down the steps or or whatever. The other thing, though, that I found interesting was that at dinner, the father sits at one head of the table. Vanya sits ah, opposite him. Okay. And I found that very interesting, particularly because he makes such a point of telling her she's not special and prevented her from joining the others. And then, you know, we get that scene where the others are getting the umbrella tattoos and we see her standing alone up on the uh, upper level, drawing it in magic marker on her own arm. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But complicated relationship clearly an outsider the first one to leave and you certainly can understand why but she committed the sin of writing a tell-all book but the relationship she has with her other siblings is clearly strained some more so than others and then she finds out that her father never even read the book yeah it's it's a book that in a third episode it does show her trying to do some book readings of her book and, and her audience is dwindling such to the point where they put the book in the bargain bin at the bookstores, but <laughs> it's just something that has damaged her. It's like, it doesn't seem like anything that she can do does anything to bring her closer to anybody that she wants to be close to, or even heal any damage that she may have already done. She just makes it worse. Right. But the other thing I'd noticed on, on a couple of occasions, she takes pills of some sort. Right. So whatever they are, don't know yet. I feel like that might even be holding whatever power she has hidden at bay. <laughs> well, that then begs the question, are these pills something that her father gave her at the beginning to suppress? Yeah, I like it. <laughs> All right. Now, number four, arguably the most fascinating character of the seven Klaus played by Robert Sheehan from genius and misfits uh, and, and misfits. Very similar character. In fact, in that show <laughs> right now, initially we see him as he's released from rehab, drugs, alcohol, he steals to support his habit. He his father just died. So his first inclination is, all right, what can I steal to get money? And he steals that box and throws his father's journal in a dumpster And again, through two episodes, we don't really know what's in that journal. We suspect, as Pogo says, it's priceless. So don't know what's in there. Don't know who, if, when it gets recovered. I would suspect somebody at some point will. I hope. (laughs) Right. But Klaus's power is that he can communicate with the dead. And number six is Ben and Ben is dead. Yeah. (laughs) So we don't know how Ben died. We know there's a statue of him outside the house. But interestingly, we see him through Klaus's eyes. And I assume that's going to be the way it's going to go throughout the season. I like the one scene when Klaus is is, uh, with Diego sitting in the backseat of Diego's car and he's talking to Ben. And of course, we see Diego looking in the rearview mirror and only sees Klaus we wonder what he's thinking does he know Klaus is 
talking to Ben. Right. I get the impression that he hasn't told his siblings that he's seeing Ben. Like maybe that's why he's such a drug addict and numbing his feelings all the time. He can't communicate with the dead when he's under the influence of something. So maybe that's why he's always under the influence of something, not just because of Ben, but because of other dead people that maybe bother him sometimes. Right. And then last is number five. And number five is number five. Number five. (laughs) Yeah. No other name. Disappeared without a trace 17 years prior. Doing the math, I get the idea they're all about to turn 30. Okay. That sounds about right. Played by Aiden Gallagher. So while the others are all adults, he's basically 12, 13 years old. And before he reappears, you know, everybody else is wondering, of course, whether he's still out there or not. And we get that scene. The others are outside the house. They've got the urn with their father's ashes. And and of course, there's a brief fracas between the brothers outside when a temporal anomaly appears and the young number five shows up and we learn that his power is he can travel not only through time but space as well and he's been in the future for 45 years in his time right he actually showed up kind of old when he initially started coming through the time portal and then as he dropped through it showed up at the age that he left and he he was as surprised as we were. And they were, I think at that point. (laughs) Right. And when one of his siblings asks him to explain it, he's like, what do you mean? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Just because, (laughs) but we do learn that he went against his father's wishes and time traveled that as a child, his father was all for him learning to use his ability to travel spatially, but he warned him time and again about time travel he doesn't heed his father's warning and we see that scene where he jumps ahead and at first we he goes from what apparently is spring or summer and then it's winter and then the next thing you know it's post-apocalyptic nuclear winter or whatever it <laughs> yeah, is yeah and we see him standing outside the burning family home but when he tries to go back he can't right and and you have to give it to hargreaves he's kind of a mean guy we know this but Time travel is dangerous. He doesn't know perhaps what consequences could happen from changing history and all that. But this apocalyptic future was probably not even anything that Hargreaves could have conceived of, or maybe, or maybe he does. We don't know, but it certainly is something that's going to be at the core of the show. And I love that that's how it ends the first episode where he just tells Vanya, the world is going to end in eight days and we need to stop it. Because that apocalyptic future that he saw isn't that far off. (laughs) Right, right. Which then leads us to these armed guys that come after number five in that donut shop. And he kills them all. And then we see him dig a tracking device out of his arm. So we're wondering, well, are these guys time cops? Yeah, I think they are. I think they are. Yeah. Some kind of not necessarily time cops, like trying to enforce some time travel rules or anything, but they certainly are. I think time travelers themselves. Right. Um, so you, you know, you wonder, is there intention to preserve the timeline? I don't know. A la continuum or, but we don't really know, but we do meet Hazel and Cha-Cha who've (laughs) been assigned to kill number five. Hazel is the guy. Cha-Cha is the girl. (laughs) Right. And one of them says, we've never been after one of our own. And I'm thinking, well, what does that mean? Yeah, I don't know either. It's it's something that I think will be revealed as the 
season goes along, but I really like that they play it close to the vest here early on. Right. But, you know, you mentioned, you know, he got stuck in a post-apocalyptic future, claims to know the day the world ends, and I have no idea how to stop it. Is his dire view of the future true? He starts to wonder whether what he saw really happened. I, I think we have to go with the premise that, yes, it did happen. Right. And I think the they continue to flash back to his time in the future to give us clues about what he knows and things like that. So I definitely feel like that makes it real, right? right. <laughs> as but, real as it needs to be. But then we get the deal with the prosthetic eye that he's been carrying around. And this person, Dolores, with whom he spent 30 years in the future, she was his companion. And Mike, was his companion a mannequin? Well, yeah. I mean, think about it. You're stuck in the apocalyptic future. Wilson. No one. Exactly. It's a Wilson scenario. No one to talk to. So you go into the department store that's a pile of rubble and you come across a mannequin and that's who you talk to for the next 45 years. Right. But I started thinking, all right, did the prosthetic eye come from a mannequin? Well, no, no. He says then the person who lost the eye will be responsible for the apocalypse. Well, I'm happy to report that actually has a little bit of fleshing out in episode three, which you haven't seen yet. But then we see that scene during the apocalyptic future and he sees all of his siblings dead in the rubble, except Vanya. It looks as if he pulls the eye from the dead hand of Luther. So again, it goes back to this prosthetic eye. And then Luther, what's really put him on the trail that something is up with his father's death is the fact that his father's monocle is missing. So I'm wondering, is this going to come back something that their father is responsible for? Well, but didn't uh, Diego have the monocle and it was just lying about it? Well, that's true too as well, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure what's going on, but you wouldn't (laughs) use the monocle for a prosthetic eye, but false eye. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, Reginald Hargreaves, we've, talked a little bit about him during the course of this discussion his kids see him as a monster he started the umbrella academy ostensibly as a means of training and then showing off his children's abilities but then that goes back to the question that you raised at the beginning how did he even know they had abilities and what happened like what happened that that fell by the wayside was it something that he realized needed to go into a different direction or did it get away from him right Now, what about mother? I'm thinking, all right, shouldn't mother appear older? I mean, mean, she seems to be out of it, doesn't remember some things. Well, now, did you see it coming, what she was? Uh, I kind of did. Yeah, so did I. (laughs) That one scene, mom just has to rest, you know, recharge. Now, I didn't catch that until the (laughs) rewatch. But the other thing that, again, I, I found fascinating, she's looking at the paintings on the wall as if she sees something in them. And then we see her recharging. Well, here's the thing. They ask her questions about their father's death because she was there. Right. She was present and she can't bring herself to answer it. Is that some sort of trauma? Is it something that's been erased from her Android memory banks? What's going on there? But yeah, I love this, that you've got Hargreaves with his superhero kids, but then also mother and Pogo adding to his eccentricity. (laughs) Right. And let's finish up with Pogo, who is an intelligent talking chimp 
who was Reggie's best friend and servant. And right from the start, oh, talking chimp wearing a suit. Okay, cool. I'm on board. <laughs> yeah, it's like we don't need to know anything more than that. Right. It's just something that he came up with. <laughs> right. And it reminds me of Alfred in Batman. He's the only one to speak at the service. And that's understandable as we learn the way the children see their father. Well, Pogo's not just intelligent. Pogo is wise. Yes. And I love him as a character because of that. He has a lot of good things to say, advice to give, and sympathy to share. Yeah. But as I said at the beginning, I I just love this show. It's on the one hand, your typical superhero show. On the other, it's not anything like it. You know, we've got origin story issues. We've got uh, mystery of the father's death. We've got time travel. And as you and I have said many times, time travel, we're on board. (laughs) And and a post-apocalyptic future that may be able to be prevented. So... The Umbrella Academy, Netflix, check it out. I think you're going to love it. Yeah, I've definitely been enjoying it. I've been uh, talking to some folks on Twitter about it. And in fact, I I was able to get in contact with Jeff King, one of the executive producers of this show. And we've been talking about Continuum a little bit, our Continuum days. And he was a producer on that show, too, and contributed to our podcast. And Dave, I just happened to notice we're communicating via Skype for recording the podcast as usual. And he's on right now. I see that his green light is lit up. Shall we give him a call and see if he's uh, able to talk to us a little bit about the show? Absolutely. <laughs> let's try it out. It worked with Luvia Peterson back in the Continuum Day, so let's see. Well, actually, let me go ahead and uh, do this during the break, and we'll be right back after this short interlude, and we'll see if we can get Jeff King on the line. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Okay, I'm clicking on it. Let's see if it's... Oh, it's ringing. Here we go. Hey, it's Jeff. Oh, hey, Jeff. I'm so glad you were on Skype. I just wanted to grab you to talk about Umbrella Academy. Do you have a sec? Mike, I have, yeah, actually I do. Uh, you caught me at a good time. <laughs> oh, good. And I'm here with Dave. 
Dave, and how are today, you? I'm doing great, Jeff. Dave is steering our conversation of the Umbrella Academy, and we have only seen the first two episodes so far. Ah, so okay. Hopefully our listeners will have had a chance to at least get that far. A whole but, um, weekend of Netflix and chill should be able to get you to the end of number 10. It's a fast binge. Yes, it is. And it's definitely one that you want to keep going. <laughs> That's for sure. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Really, I'm glad, glad you felt that way coming at it, too. Yes, exactly. And uh, it's interesting that um, I still have my contacts. I have a tweet deck column just for the people that worked on Continuum so I can still keep in touch with the my roots, you know, so <laughs> cool, cool. That was a great show and a wonderful time in my life. Thanks to uh, Simon Barry. What a great, uh, what a great thing that was. Happy to meet you guys then too. And what was interesting to me too, is that, you know, you were an executive producer on Continuum and that's how we first crossed paths with you. But Blind Spot is another one of your big projects. And now we have the Umbrella Academy. And although you're not the showrunner of those shows that I just listed, everyone knows that the producer list is more than just the head honchos. So because you bring a lot of comics writing knowledge to the table, can you describe, you know, maybe through your experience with DC's Convergence miniseries and others, what your responsibilities entail? And do you take on other duties as well? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, having a comics writing background allowed me, for example, to come into the Umbrella Academy, having read Gerard and Gabrielle's amazing graphic novels, but also having a background in comics writing and having a background as a writer and as a showrunner and director in TV, it allowed me to really have a good, responsive, intuitive grasp of where I feel the nexus of a good adaptation of a comic into a series comes from. And when I read the original script by Jeremy Slater and then especially Steve Blackman's draft that became the basis for the show and of the first episode that you guys have watched and the rest of the series, I really responded viscerally feeling like, wow, this is going to be a great adaptation of that underlying material because you can never do it word for word, beat for beat, because a good comic is like poetry expanded, filled with water, you know, it would be a thousand year TV series. So you have to pick <laughs> those great moments and uh, build episodes out of them. At least that's my viewpoint. And I feel like that's what I was able to look at and recognize, but appreciate both. Well, you know, it's funny, you mentioned your comics background, and Mike and I have, have talked many times about the fact that I have no comics background, I have no graphic novel background, and it's really been learning on the fly. And, and I've certainly had an epiphany as to what's out there and what can be brought to the small screen. So, you know, when I look at Umbrella Academy, I mean, who doesn't love the story of a dysfunctional family and, you know, the, the members who are struggling still to find their places as adults. And, you know, while, while that certainly makes for compelling TV, what else do you hope the viewer takes away from this experience with the Umbrella Academy kids who are now adults? Wow. Um, when somebody asks me what the show is about, uh, after I tell them the things that you need to know, their dysfunctional family of adopted superheroes, raised by a cold, distant 
father to protect the world who, as teenagers break up, one disappears, one dies, they become famous, they move on, and they have to reunite when they are 30-somethings because of their father's death and to come back to his funeral and then to solve a larger mystery. So for me, what I hope we're going to take away is any of those life experiences that you can, everyone can relate to, what it's like being a kid in a family, even if you feel like a weird outsider, um, being a grown-up and having to take on those responsibilities and a milestone like a parent passing. Those are all things that we can relate to. So hopefully, hopefully what you're taking away from it is that little tug in your heart or that little place in your stomach where you relate to a character deeply because their personal lens on it feels like yours. And I think, you know, the performances are amazing. When you finally watch the whole thing, Ellen Page is putting on a masterclass of exploring her character, Robert, Emmy, Tom, David, Aiden. I mean, they're all terrific. Mary and Cameron are bonkers. Um, Colin Fior, who plays uh, Hargreaves, and uh, Jordan Claire Robbins, who plays uh, Grace, are both uh, extraordinary. And and we were blessed with this amazing work by Weta Workshop, Weta Digital, to do uh, Pogo, the anthropomorphic talking chimpanzee, is Weta's first um, first TV series work ever. Wow. Uh, the people who do uh, Lord of the Rings and do uh, the Planet of the Apes movies. And we had uh, a small actor on set, Ken Hall, who was brilliant and played all the lines. And then uh, Adam Godley uh, voiced him. So that's kind of a long answer to come back around to saying that ultimately it's about the characters. And so if I had to shorthand it a little bit, I would say it's kind of like the big chill with superpowers. <laughs> yeah. Because that's my lens. I mean, that's the way I'm seeing it. I've had a parent pass. I've I've never had superpowers, but I've certainly been dysfunctional. So I get the the how the metaphor extends to me. And it's also fun. I mean, I think Gerard and Gabrielle did such an extraordinary job at Dave Stewart and everybody who worked on the books that the, you know, you can never do the book. I mean, you just can't do the book because it's visually so stunning. It's impossible. And a two-dimensional world and a three-dimensional world are different things. But I think in our own way, what we've done is applied an aesthetic that keeps it unexpected, fun, uh, different, weird, that has been preserved. And I think, you know, I feel comfortable and confident that while not everyone will get it and it won't resonate with everyone, that, you know, somebody who's who's kind of worked in both worlds, I feel confident that we're doing justice to the underlying material. And I think the guys do, too. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think it's interesting you went with that particular theme as the highlight of the series, because... Uh, besides the time travel aspects of the show, because I'm a huge time travel fan, that <laughs> that scene of uh, the group, you know, fighting at their father's funeral, but also dancing to the same song in different rooms kind of encapsulates <laughs> pretty much yeah. what you're going to see throughout the season. Exactly. I, I When I got to that scene in uh, Steve's draft, I knew that I had an emotional connection to the show and understood it. And I think that's really special. And then, you know, you can see how they're all together in the same house and isolated. It's a wonderful image. And Peter Hoare did a nice job directing that episode, too. So you talked about sort of identifying with the 
people on the show. I definitely have a favorite character in number five just because of the time travel <laughs> bit. But mm-hmm. what character do you most identify with or who are you most excited for fans to learn more about? Wow. You know, um, <laughs> uh, unlike Hargreaves, uh, I'm picking no favorites or maybe like Hargreaves, I can pick no favorites. Um, I actually have a favorite character who I can't talk about that you haven't met yet by the time okay. <laughs> you get to the end of episode two. But uh, maybe uh, next time or when we do a follow up call, I can uh, I can tell you who that is. But I feel like of all of them, in a way, because I am an oldest child, I can sort of relate to Luther's issue uh, most of all. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm glad you didn't pick the character that I want to ask you a question about, because even though she's been told her whole life that there's nothing special about her, it, why does it feel as if Vanya is the most important member of the family? Um, well, that's a really good question. I mean, in a way, uh, think about it. If there are six of you and five are special and one isn't, who's the most unique? That's true. <laughs> So, you know, I'll I'll leave you to to think about that for a second, but that's really I mean it start it begins there. And uh, you know, it also uh, happens that we were fortunate enough to have uh, Ellen Page agree to uh, you know, come along and and play that part and that's another reason because she's such an incredibly compelling performer. But I but I feel like it it really begins in the uniqueness of that character at the outset. That, you know, while they're all struggling with their own shit and they've got their own problems, um, she's really a remarkable, uh, remarkable and her her unremarkableness. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I also find it fascinating that despite all these things her father tells her when they sit down to dinner, who sits opposite her father? Yeah, absolutely. Her. Absolutely. Very telling. Very telling. Well, listen, Jeff, we're going to let you go. We, We kind of barged in on you here but uh, no no gonna... not at all <laughs> not at all i just have to go turn my car off <laughs> okay well thanks so much for talking about umbrella academy we can't wait for our listeners to uh embrace this show on netflix thanks guys uh appreciate the call okay thanks thank you all right that was so great to have jeff talk to us about the show definitely gave us some insights that i think added well to our discussion earlier about the first couple episodes of, of the umbrella academy oh yeah and i know we felt moderately guilty about interrupting him because <laughs> I know we both had more questions we'd have loved to ask, but got to respect his time. That's right. So thanks, Jeff King, for joining us. And hopefully that enlightened your view of the Umbrella Academy, whether you've started watching it or not. So thanks, Jeff, for joining us for that. So, Dave, what's next uh, on our docket for discussion on Sci-Fi Fidelity? Well, next up is a discussion of non-English speaking international shows that you and I both feel people should not miss. Yeah, this brings out of some uh, stuff that Dave's been doing on Netflix. You've been really getting into the the foreign language stuff uh, lately, not just in the genre field, but elsewhere as well. So absolutely. I'm glad we have this as a topic because there's a lot of good stuff out there that people need to know about. But we'll save that for next week. That's going to be it for this episode of Sci-Fi Fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. In the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. And be sure to send us your suggestions for future topics on social media or as an email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hold up. 
Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.